This morning, I'm going to uh, preach a sermon that I preached last February, something that the Lord laid on my heart after the uh, beginning of the year. I preached it at Cornerstone. I preached it at Crossroads. But I believe as Pastor Curl told me, if you preach a message, it's worth preaching a second time. And if you didn't have any success the first time, don't, it doesn't deserve to be heard even the first time. Um, I think I got that all confused. But anyway, Pastor Curl, I'm preaching this for the third time today. The title of the message is Taking the Higher Ground. Now every time I do a message, I, when I repeat it, I tweak it. I go over it. And this is the first time I've used this title. And so last night I really enjoyed uh, just looking up the phrase... Uh, higher ground and where it had its origins back in the 16th century. And it really means a place and position of superiority and advantage. A place of superiority and advantage. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so his ways, not your and my ways, but his ways are superior to the ways of the world, to the ways that I was taught before I was a Christian. His ways are superior, and to those who will obey by faith and live out those words, the teachings of Jesus, there is an advantage to that person. I want us today to take a look at this subject of taking the higher ground. Turn to Matthew 5, and if you have um, your Bible app, you can turn to that. Those of you joining us by internet, we welcome you and encourage you to also look at your Bible and turn to Matthew 7, and we will be looking at a number of scriptures there, so keep your spot open there. The Christian is called to higher ground. We are called to a higher standard than that of the world. And we get these teachings from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And let's have a word of prayer before we do that. Father, we thank you for the teachings of your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, and how relevant it is for us here today. And so speak to our hearts, speak to our lives, what you would have for us today. Lord, not just what you spoke then, but what you're speaking now. Your word is not something that has been spoken, it's still speaking. And I pray that you'll speak to me, that you'll speak to this congregation, to those who are joining us by internet. Speak to us, and may we hear you and what you're saying to each of us specifically. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5. These chapters, 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, contain what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It consists of not only the Beatitudes that Jesus taught, but his teachings on subjects like anger, prayer, fasting, money, worry, lust, retaliation, and 
much more. Some have told us that the Sermon on the Mount is to the New Testament what the Ten Commandments are to the Old Testament. Those who will embrace, internalize, and practice the teachings of Jesus will renew their minds. We need mind renewal. And will demonstrate the love of Christ. We are to follow his teachings. We are to demonstrate his love. And as a result of that, we'll be blessed and we'll have an advantage. If I were to take a poll and ask how many of you want to live the blessed life, there would be everybody would raise their hand. Everybody wants to be blessed. But Jesus is only promising here blessings to those who live and apply these teachings in their life. This is the Christian standard. We have to model it, we have to apply it to our current situations in the church, in the marketplace, and most certainly in our home. Point number one today is depend on God. Depend on God. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed. The teachings of Jesus, I think we will agree, are really contrary to the world's ways. As we said, they're higher than our ways. They're superior to our ways. So in order for me to learn his ways, I might have to unlearn some things that I've been taught. Uh, I came to Christ when I was 25 years of age. My life philosophy, my view on different topics, my worldview was completely different. The same, I'm sure, is for you, and we have to acknowledge that. No disrespect to how we were raised and who raised us, but if we're not raised according to Scripture, there are some things we're going to have to unlearn and acknowledge that they're not correct. They're in conflict with God's Word. Now, spiritual health and spiritual prosperity are birthed in poverty of spirit. This is the beginning step. This is the first step in the progression of the Beatitudes. If we want to know spiritual blessings, we are going to have to take this first step of being poor in spirit. It speaks of being needy from a spiritual perspective, not financial. The Greek word for poor here means begging, needing, and power to accomplish an end. Right away as he starts to teach, he's, he's basically telling us the impossibility of you and I on our own living out this sermon that he's preaching. You'll fail. 
If we don't get step number one right, we will fail in our attempts to do the following steps. We have to begin from a point of spiritual poverty, realizing how destitute you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. We can't accomplish an end without him. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And that's what he's saying here in the Beatitudes. You know, sometimes we can begin to see success in our spiritual life, and the danger is that success can breed independence of God. I actually, myself, my personal conviction, I think the body of Christ in America has experienced some success over the years and as a result have become independent of God. When we begin to feel independence, our cries to God become less frequent. If, if we live a prayerless life, we are not dependent on God. If the church, the prayer ministry of the church, is not strong, it's an indication that we are dependent on self and not on God. If, it's, if the prayer life is Strong, we are depending on God. If the prayer life is weak, we are not depending on God. It's necessary that we get this part down. We cannot live the Christian life without it. We need dependence on God to live well, to love well, to do anything and everything well. And those who are poor in spirit spend time seeking God. I was going to say spend time on their knees seeking God, but at this age, my knees don't take it anymore. Uh, so whether you sit, or whether you kneel, or whether you lie down, we need to spend time seeking God. I think this church is no different than any other church. We are in desperate need for a move of His Spirit the world is in a desperate need of a move of God and the church has got to get back to the place of seeking God with all of their heart. Point number two is mourners. Mourners. Verse four. Says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, this has some application to those who are mourning a loss, the death of someone very special or a loved one. But that is not the primary purpose of this verse. That's not what this verse is saying. This, I believe, is something relevant, and I've, I've just recently seen a couple different authors address this subject. 
The idea of mourning is relevant and of importance to us today. Turn with me, keep your spot there in Matthew, and turn to the book of James, chapter 4. And James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, he is speaking here to the church. He is not speaking to the unbeliever. James writes this to the believer. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, be wretched. That means grieve and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is not something you probably hear very often. The the church receiving a call to mourn. I believe the Spirit of God is, and again, this isn't something, no one can make you mourn. You can't make yourself mourn. But the more we depend upon God, the more we get closer to him, the more this will become reality In our lives. So what are we to mourn? We are to mourn when we see ourselves and other believers behave like the carnally minded. I want you to think about that. Meditate on it. We should mourn when we see our own behavior. First of all, let's start where we need to start with ourselves. How many of our thoughts, how many of our words, how many of our actions are really inconsistent with Scripture? The unbeliever has to mourn their lost state. But as believers, we need to mourn how unlike we often are to our Savior. Again, if I were to take a poll and say, how many of you would love a spiritual refreshing? How many are believing for a spiritual refreshing? We all want it. The church wants it. But you know what? God wants to send a spiritual refreshing more than you and I want to receive it. But there are some conditions for a spiritual refreshing. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 3. If you're not... Turning there, you may want to look at these passages later. But chapter 3 and verse 19 of the book of Acts says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I believe it is a spiritual principle throughout Old and New Testament that repentance always preceded a move of God and a time of refreshing. I think the body of Christ, and I'm speaking of the evangelical, those born-again believers, followers of Christ, I think it's time we do some serious repenting. 
We're called as a nation to repent and turn from our wicked ways. He said, those who are my people. He's not calling the world to that. He's calling his church, his people to that. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways. Whatever is not consistent with the higher ground needs to be repented and turned from. Repenting is comforting because what follows is the refreshing. When I'm less than God wants me to be, I'm the first to admit Ruth would be the second. When I'm less than God wants me to be, I need to run to him for restoration. Now God loves me just like I am. But don't hide behind that. Because he loves you too much to keep you the way you are. The Holy Spirit's intention in your life and my life is to bring you and I under absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit's working to do in our lives. And as a result of that, or to accomplish that end, he's going to have to confront and deal with some things in our lives. I don't think it's too hard to admit, I'm not always what God wants me to be. And neither are you. So we have to admit it. We have to go to him for forgiveness. Like David who prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and try my heart. Know my thoughts, and if there is any wicked way in me, lead me in your path. It has to be in an attitude, a spirit of mourning to say, God, change me. Change my heart, O God. God's love draws us to mourn our sins and seek forgiveness so that we might walk in close intimacy with him. Let the Holy Spirit and the word of God confront you. Sometimes we're over-concerned about confronting each other or someone else. What about allowing the Holy Spirit to confront you where you're at? Point number three is seek meekness. Back in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You've heard, I'm sure, that meekness is not weakness, but rather strength under control. This is a description of Jesus. He described himself in Matthew 11 as one who was meek. We're to follow his example. He, he not only taught meekness, he lived meekness. He demonstrated it for us. It means having a gentle spirit and a mild disposition. It's listed among the fruit of the spirit. We're to be mild-mannered, mild and gentle disposition toward one another and toward others. Number four is hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's talk first of all about what this is not. This is not obviously speaking of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is described this way. When one is convinced of their own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Think about that. How often do we have a Pharisee attitude where we may look at others and think that our beliefs and our actions are always right? It's like the Pharisee at a prayer meeting. The Pharisee and the publican came, and the Pharisee, or the publican, he he couldn't even look up. He was poor in spirit. He wept and he beat upon his chest and acknowledged his unworthiness. But the Pharisee stood back and said, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You know, sometimes when we have our, when we do life, we always think that our actions and our beliefs are justifiable. We have to be careful for that. That's not the righteousness that's spoken of here. By position, you and I as believers are the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank God for that. We are talking there about position and about standing. But then there's the state of the believer. You know, we get at the beginning of the year, we get the State of the Union address, we get the State of the State address. And we could have a State of the Church address. We could have the State of Self. That has to be addressed. Because sometimes we find out that our State is not consistent with our standing. Our behavior does not demonstrate God's righteousness. Righteousness is defined as doing right in regard to God and man. God cares about how we treat each other. He cares a lot about how we treat each other. And we see from, from Scripture that when the great commandments were summed up, what are the greatest of the commandments? Two were given. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are told in scripture that the world will know us, the church, by our love for one another. So what kind of a witness are we to a world 
if we're not showing love to each other. We're not. It doesn't say that the world will know we're his disciples by, you know, uh, how great our worship is or our preaching or how the gifts of the Spirit are being manifested. The world gets its best glimpse of what the church is when the believer demonstrates love to one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the marriage chapter. Well, it certainly has some application to marriage, but it has nothing to do in a context with marriage. It has to do with the church and how we treat each other. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth where there was great division, great dissension, you know, there was class distinctions. Their divisions were demonstrating their immaturity. And so Paul writes to him and says that God's not given us, or, or he writes, and I believe it's consistent with what he told Timothy, about God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. God has given us what it takes to live this Christian life. And 1 Corinthians 12 is the power. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love. And 1 Corinthians 14 is the soundness of mind. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying to a church where the gifts were being, they were predominant, they were preeminent, they were very obvious. And he tells them they're to operate in an atmosphere of love. Everything we do, every gift that operates, all of our interactions are to be done in love for one another. We cannot do wrong by men and do right by God. Scripture is clear that if, if we're out of connection with one another, then there's going to be an interruption in my fellowship and intimacy with God. It's true in the marriage. It's true in the church. It's true in our one-on-one -on -one relationships. If we're out of proper relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters, there's something wrong with our relationship with God. We cannot allow the unrighteous work of the flesh to allow itself to be manifested in our lives. Galatians 5 lists a whole uh, catalog of the demonstrations of the flesh. And there are some biggies there, you know, that we're all in agreement on. The uh, adultery and all the obscenities mentioned there of the flesh and drunkenness. But it also lists things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, and division. Now Jesus has given us a strong picture here in this passage of how fervent we should be seeking for this righteousness. 
he uses the words hunger and thirst. Now, some of you, your stomach is already growling because it's 1137 and you think you're getting hungry. That's not really hunger. Most of us don't know what hunger is. This is a craving. God, by his spirit, wants to put in our hearts a craving that our relationship with him is right and our relationship with one another are right. And let me say this, church, and I would say this regardless of what we were going through right now. God doesn't choose sides. He's simply saying, get it worked out. And do it in a mature and a Christ-like way. Righteousness. Lord, help us to show the fruit of the Spirit. Help there to be evidence, not just in our worship service, but in our daily living. Help us to show evidence that your Spirit is working and present in our lives. And that's through the fruit of the Spirit. Number five, show mercy. Matthew chapter 7 opens with that familiar passage, Judge not lest you be judged. It's a stern warning. I don't think it's shutting the door on all judgment because there would be a conflict with other scriptures that seem to suggest that we do proper judgment. But I believe it's teaching us that Love does not judge in a wrong spirit. It doesn't assume or make unrighteous judgments like Job's friends did. And before we can judge, we have to start with ourselves. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Why are you trying to pick out the speck out of your brother's eye and you've got a log in your own eye? The whole idea is by the time we get through with our own personal assessment and God's dealing with us and our desire for his mercy, we will be merciful to others. We are to show mercy. God is showing you great mercy. He shows us his mercy every day. And we should, as his children, be showing mercy to one another. Now, I, I don't know if Pastor Curl has a garden or not. But I'll bet you if he does, it's got weeds in it. Now, if I go over there and I continue to focus on Pastor Curl's weeds and ignore mine, pretty soon my garden is going to be overrun with weeds and it's going to choke whatever harvest I might have. You know, we have enough weeds in our own garden that we shouldn't try to go and point out the weeds in somebody else's. Number six is pursue purity. Purity of heart. Verse Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This has to do with motives. I don't know about you, but again, I'm going to acknowledge my motives are not always right. 
Sometimes my motives are very self-serving and self-preserving. And the Holy Spirit has to remind us that's wrong and we make right. You know, at the judgment seat of Christ, we are all going to be judged for the works that we have done. I'm not talking about the white throne judgment. I'm talking about the judgment seat of Christ. And all who are believers will stand before God and give an account. Not just for what you did, but the motive behind it. And we know that the wood, hay, and the stubble gets consumed. I think a lot of our works will be consumed because it wasn't done with proper motive. You know, we're supposed to be in the people building business. It's never about who gets their way or it should not be about uh, experiencing success or advancement at somebody else's cause or somebody else's expense. Our motives have to be right. Our motives must ultimately be about glorifying God. And we can never compromise our character and our integrity. But there's a number of scriptures that say whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it for Him. If for no other reason, do it for Him and for His glory. Loving others has eternal rewards. This says that those with a pure heart shall see God. Those rewards go beyond numbers, stats, money, or anything else that you might use as a measurement. Number seven, in verse, microphone stands a little in the way, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. Romans 12, 18 tells us that we're to be at peace with all people as much as it depends on you. So if the whole thing depends on you, or even if it doesn't, you're supposed to make every effort to keep peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says strive for peace with everyone. The idea that it strives suggests it's an action word. It's not going to be easy. God gives us peace. The peace is something given to us by God. But in order to maintain peace, it is your responsibility and my responsibility to strive to maintain that peace and keep peace. It's not easy when we know that there is an enemy whose main strategy is to cause division. You know, when it comes to the armor of God, God has given us shoes to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This gospel is all about peace. We have to be intentional. And we're intentional by submitting to God and asking him for grace. Because to maintain peace will not be easy. But God, give us the grace we need to do it. We submit to you and we acknowledge that 
this is an impossible effort without your help. Bring peace. Your peace. And again, it's not about self-preservation. You know, something that's more important than your right or my right is what's best for the church. As a pastor, there were times where I had to determine which, which battles would be fought. And sometimes there were conflicts between me and another person that really didn't pertain or apply to the church. And you know what? I just figured there were times I needed to take one for the team. Sometimes we have to take one for the team. Sometimes we're going to get our toes stepped on. Bumps and bruises. That's a part of marriage. That's a part of church. That's a part of life. And sometimes to just get our way. Isn't what's best for the church. Did somebody drop a pin? Thought I heard it. <laughs> to keep division out of our midst and to establish a culture of peace, we have to remain focused on spiritual matters and keep ourselves planted on higher ground. The last point, number eight, is expect persecution. Verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Christians are not to retaliate, but they are to pray for those who are moving in an opposite and different direction. We're called to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, and to give up our cloak for the sake of the gospel, for his sake. Now someone would say, so are you saying we are supposed to be doormats? No, I don't believe Jesus teaches that. I believe, though, that you and I are called to be an example of Jesus Christ. Our life is supposed to be an example of him. Throughout history, Jesus and his followers have kept their eye on the prize and have walked the higher course. Worship team, if you would come, please. The Sermon on the Mount ends in Matthew chapter 7 with a promise and with a stern warning that we would do well to give heed to. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, if you'd like to follow along, and I'm reading from the 
ESV, the English Standard Version. It says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. In other words, it's established on a higher ground. What an advantage. The believer who follows the word of God, who not only hears it, but lives it, who does it, is going to be at an advantage in a world where the winds are intensifying. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus wants us to internalize and live these scriptures out so that we can be blessed. There are consequences for not doing these things. We won't know the blessings. We won't know the fullness. We won't know the satisfaction and joy that God has for us if we don't follow his teachings. It's not enough to just come forward and pray that God would bless us. There are some things required to live this life. God wants to bless us. Take the things of Jesus' teachings and let them speak to you. Let them change you. Let them transform you. Let them replace the old way of doing things. The Beatitudes remind us of the Christian standard, the ideal of the Christian heart. You know, when I read this, I realize that I have not lived up to them. You know, the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments really is to show us how we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When I read the Sermon on the Mount as a Christian, it's a reminder to me that I'm not there yet. When I looked up this phrase, higher ground, I saw that there was a Baptist pastor who had preached on the subject. And the scripture he used was how Paul said he had not yet arrived. But he still pressed on. Church, this is our goal. Our goal is to live out the Sermon on the Mount and the scriptures. And when you don't match up, there's a place to go for forgiveness. There's a place to go and say, Father, I haven't done this. It's going back to step number one, where I come back to being poor in the spirit, where I realize, God, I come up so short, I need you. Where I begin to mourn my condition, my state, not my standing. I'm not saying anybody's losing their salvation. What I'm saying is your state might need some attention. Mine does. 
The Holy Spirit is calling you and I in these dark times to a higher ground, higher than the world. He's calling you and I to reach beyond our beliefs, reach beyond our opinions to a higher ground. And that higher ground is the Word of God and the example of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you have not ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that. The anointers are going to come. You may come and ask them to pray with you or you could pray right there in your seat. But all you need to do is say, God, I come short of your expectations and your requirements. But I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me and took my place. And I am hearing you call me to a higher ground. And it begins by my asking you to forgive me and to come into my life and live for the rest of my life. It's not the words you use, it's the intent of your heart. Let Christ come in if you've never done that. And believers, it's time for us to do some self-examination. You know, when we take communion together, it's it's a time of self-examination, not time to examine the person across the aisle from me or front behind or the person next to me. Self-examination is something we should do regularly. And if God is speaking to you today about you, then you may want to come forward and just find a place to pray or pray where you are seated. You can come and sit on the front. I know for me to kneel or to stand is not easy anymore. The place and the posture isn't important, but it is that we begin to communicate with God. And whatever God is speaking to your heart, obey him today. Let him touch you. Let him begin something fresh and new. And let's begin to walk differently than we walked before we came. Stand with me. Anointers, would you come? Not sure how many are here this morning, but... Again, whatever your need might be, they will be here to pray with you and to pray for you. But also these altars are open if you would just like to come and spend a few minutes with God before you leave. God bless you. Father, as we close this service, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for our time together today. I pray the Holy Spirit will speak to hearts and lives. Lord, impact us not only here in this service, but may our lives be different as we give heed to you and to your spirit. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.